welcome to the Imposter Syndrome podcast. Today we're going to be talking about leaving academia. Everyone's talking about it, so I thought I'd get three people who in their own way have left academia with one exception. Those people are Carolina Obanska. She's a senior R&D psychologist at Chemistry Group. Jade Pickering, who is the head of customer success at Gorilla. And the third person is Ian Hussey, who is a postdoctoal researcher fellow at Ruhr University, Bochum in Germany. Welcome everybody to the podcast. Okay, let's just go around the table and uh, let everyone know kind of who you are, why you left academia, what you're doing now, stuff like that. So let's start with you, Jade. Um, well, I, I, I don't know if I'd frame it necessarily as I decided to leave. I just decided what about my work I enjoyed the most and I went down the route that enabled me to do that work and less of the work that I wasn't as keen on. Um, I I know for a while that I would only follow the academic route up to postdoc um, before I transitioned. I wanted to transition for a while into the field of user research. Um, I did think that I would spend a few more years as a postdoc, um, but the right opportunity came along for me a bit earlier, so I just switched tracks then when that came up. So that was working with Gorilla Experiment Builder. Um, but I mean, yeah, mostly it's just I wanted to focus on the things I enjoy, which is the nitty gritty of doing research. I like the active bit. I like planning a study and running a study and looking at the data. I really don't like writing it up. Um, so when I'm doing research with our users at Gorilla, I get to focus on a lot of that, a lot of the things I like. And I'm doing it in an environment where I still get to do the things that I really cared about in academia, um, like open research. Um, I bring all of that here. So I have pretty much everything I want in a job right now. And what about you, Carolina? Yeah, sure. So actually, it was interesting, Jay, that you mentioned that you kind of always knew you wanted to leave because I don't think that was the case for me. I kind of was like Miss Academia from the start. I knew that finishing my postdoc, there were so many people around me who were like, oh, I don't think I'm going to stay in academia. And I was like, what? What do you mean? Like, that's not natural next step to extend on your PhD. Um, and then I've done my first postdoc, which was a year and a half. And then I took up another three-year postdoc. Um, and obviously, three years is a quite nice time to have to start thinking about, OK, what what sort of profile am I going to be going in as an assistant professor or lecturer? What sort of expertise, what sort of things I need to have on my CV in order to kind of stay in academia and become a lecturer and be successful? And I think as I started exploring around my second year of the second postdoc, I've realized actually there's quite a lot of the permanent job of an academic that it became obvious to me through conversations from the mentors that I had that there were so many elements that I don't think that's what I signed up myself for. In other words, I was like, I really want to do research and I really enjoyed research, but do I want to spend my life being quite overworked as a lot of faculty members where like, it's okay now because I don't have a lot of dependents and, um, you know, flexible, I can move to a different place, but what's going to happen in 10 years? And I started kind of thinking a lot long-term and I've realized actually, you know what, if I don't explore another pathways now, 
I'm afraid that I'm going to get stuck in too much um, into the academic route. So I actually decided to leave my postdoc earlier because I've been um, offered an opportunity um, to join a nonprofit organization as a research specialist. Um, and I felt that in terms of kind of values and um, kind of the work that we're doing, it was just a great fit. Um, so I was quite lucky that I had a supportive PI at the time who was just like, yeah, go for it. If that's what you want to do, go on, like definitely explore it. Um, so it's been now a year since I've been in this position. And I feel it, I feel like as the months go on and me being in this position, I feel um, a lot more sure of my decision. I feel that the first few months were definitely a little bit of a, and there, were, there was a lot of uncertainty, I think, in terms of, is this a right decision? What if I'm going to leave and then I'm not going to be employable if I decide to come back? Um, but I think, as I said, as the months go on, I think that it's been a good decision in terms of kind of being able to do a lot of research and not having to do um, a lot of teaching. I still get to mentor people. I get to do research that has a lot of impact in terms of organiza that organization cares about the sort of research um, that we produce and uses it for um, making improvements to the program. Um, and I feel I've just learned so much in the past year. Um, especially in comparison to having spent seven years in academia, I felt that I got to a certain point where we keep discussing the same things. We keep having the same debates. People use quite similar methods. There's not as much innovation going on anymore. Obviously, there's innovation going, but I felt a little bit stalled in my progress and the kind of research that I was able to do. So I think that past year, since I've left academia, I've definitely been able to expand my horizons in terms of thinking more broadly, okay, what sort of methods we might be using to answer certain research questions? Um, and how does it actually work for a piece of research to arrive at having impact and making sure that, you know, whatever we do research-wise has an impact um, somewhere. I think compared to academia, obviously, we write papers and we hope that someone one day will read our paper and say, oh, I'm going to implement it and I'm going to use it to make a difference. Um, whereas I think the nice side of working outside of academia is that you kind of can see through the impact of your research. And I think that's the part that I enjoy the most. Um, so, yeah, definitely in terms of the, the day decision was driven mostly by that kind of desire to be more research and not all the other things that academics have roped into doing um, in, in their position. Okay, Ian, just finish us off then. You have quite a different situation because you sort of left academia and you came back. So very interested to know that story. Yeah, as you say, my situation is a little different. Um, so my postdoc funding was uh, drying up in uh, the end of September of 2020. And the closer that got, the more I told myself I should probably be looking for the next thing I do. And I would look at the various places you look for funding and for, uh, you know, uh, assistant professorships. And none of them sounded appealing. Uh, nothing even slightly sounded like something I wanted to do because I would have to move country again. Uh, so I, I studied in Ireland. Uh, I then moved to Belgium for a postdoc. Um, I would have to go to a country and uh, rapidly need to teach in a language I don't uh, already speak, uh, for example, going over the border to Germany, or other big compromises like that. So as the time came up and I ran and, and I, my, yeah, my funding dried up, I just didn't do anything. And then it was also okay, because thankfully there's a nice social support uh, system here in Belgium. 
Um, and they, it gave me time and space to think about what I did want to do. Um, and I applied for industry jobs and I, you know, renovated an apartment and got to use my hands and get out of my head for a while. And I would say I was quite burned out um, and very disillusioned. Um, but like Jade, I would say it would be a mistake to think of it in terms of deciding to leave because I never decided to leave. And not just because I'm now working in academia again, because I wouldn't say that I decided to come back either. Um, I decided many things about what I liked doing and that I wanted to do more of and things that I didn't want to do again. Um, and I think they're the things that brought me back. Um, I um, basically was cold called over Twitter by my current PI, Malta Elson, um, with a great opportunity because instead of doing meta science research as a guilty side project uh, from what I was my mainline yeah what I'm getting paid to do I got to do it that all the time um, and I could do it remotely so I didn't have to move um, and I think if it wasn't for an opportunity like that I would have um, just transitioned to industry as my partner since has so yeah, I, I, but I thought it was interesting the way Jade phrased it, that it was not a decision to leave, but just that an ongoing focusing on what you want to do. Um, I was really surprised. I continue to be so surprised that um, people in academia, so many of them, whether they identify that way or not, uh, don't seem to like the process of doing research. They focus heavily on the outputs, and even then, those outputs of publications get put on a shelf, a, a digital shelf somewhere, and just ignored, and they move on to the next project instead of uh, building tools or making decisions or focusing on the process of, of research itself. Um, and that's what I like doing, and that's what I get to do. So that's why I took the job that I now work. Um, I signed up to go to grad school because I really liked science i didn't know anything about academia really back then and i was stunned over time to realize how little academia has to do with science at times um so for the next few years i get to do more science and that's great and after that if i get to keep doing more of it again i will and if i don't then maybe i'll get to do science outside of it in industry or research if, if not yeah discovery science um but yeah, I'm definitely not committed to academia, but I do love the process of research. Um, it's interesting, though. I feel like between the three of us, I think all of us came to realization about their specific aspect of the process that we enjoy doing. And I feel that this is a message that I keep seeing on Twitter and speaking to people around as well. It's the kind of research part of it. It doesn't really matter what subject and specific discipline we've done our research in. Is the process of finding out new knowledge and thinking about how to approach the questions um, in terms of design of your research and how to then turn them into findings that can be actionable and do something about it. I think that's from what I'm hearing across kind of all of our stories, that's kind of the common element. And I feel that it's probably something that majority of PhD students would say that that's why they went into academia. I don't think there's a lot of people who go in academia because they want to be a professor and because they want to teach. A lot more people go in because they're excited about finding answers to the questions. And I think 
that's that's probably one of the main reasons I think that where people realize, especially in the UK, I know when I was looking into kind of assistant professorship roles, so lecturer level in the UK, you only get around one, two days, depending on what institution, whether it's Russell Group or not, of doing research. So actually, all of a sudden, your time for research and what you really enjoy gets really squeezed because majority of your time gets taken up by other activities. Um, so I'm almost surprised that not a lot more people do venture into roles that are 100% research, knowing that this is the reason why people come into academia or, or doing PhD in the first place. Yeah, I yeah I I kind of get the sense of that's true as well. People do enjoy the process of research, and I think there's a common misconception amongst academics who haven't experienced alternative career paths that if you go into industry you lose all ability to be creative, all ability to be innovative, all ability to have impact. I think they see industry as quite a scary place to be where you're basically doing something that you're not interested in to earn someone else a profit. But it's not, it's not like that at all. I have fun every single day in my job. Um, I'm paid to have fun, basically. I do everything that I enjoy. I come up with ideas all the time. I have pet projects that I work on. I have more freedom in this job than I did in academia, and I get to do the research stuff five days a week. Um, I have a work-life balance as well, which is always a bonus. I don't have to do anything other than my job. Um, and I think that's something that's definitely worth repeating. That there is that misconception that in industry you don't get all of those positive elements of research. So there's a lots of reasons why people leave academia. One is that there's always been this sort of pyramidical structure in academia where it's very bottom heavy and as you progress in your career there are fewer and fewer job opportunities. So there's always been a movement particularly in the junior ranks to leave academia. I think what's different though now is that uh, we're noticing senior academics leave, full tenured professors leave academia which is unusual and there are clearly many reasons why this happens pay workload uh, pensions but I wonder whether there's another thing that's contributing to it and one thing that I am concerned about is that the perverse incentive structure that drives people's behavior in academia this incentive structure that is quite hostile to good scientific practice open reproducible research practices for example and instead values the things that undermine um, re replicable, uh, robust results. Whether that kind of disincentivization of good practice is a is a key factor in in why people leave, is that what do you, what are your thoughts? The fear or the impression that good research is not sufficiently valued inside academia, and is that like a driver? to leave definitely um it has been in the past for me it will be i'm sure again after i run out of funding this time um i am extremely surprised the degree to which scientists uh are uninterested in the fact that they 
have been wrong in the past or will be in the future, right? basically don't update their behavior in light of data. Um, and I think for anybody who's like, not necessarily a trained methodologist or a quant researcher, but just anybody methodologically inclined, the more that you get into methods and stats and, and, and credibility reforms generally, when you see uh, scientific findings, highly credible ones just being ignored, you start to feel, I start to feel, uh, like, why did I bother doing it in the first place? If you have these really distal, like, well, the people whose study don't rep didn't replicate, uh, they definitely don't update their beliefs, but maybe there's this more distal impact, um, more junior people reading it, or people in other fields, sometimes even an entire field won't self-correct, but maybe other fields around it can say, well, let's not be those guys. Um, but still, that's a highly distal consequence of your work. And it takes a lot of like um, self-talk around it to, to, to convince yourself that it was worthwhile compared to somebody saying, that was great. Wow, I didn't realize we were about to sink millions into or whatever scale of money into lines of research that you're telling me I could never find anything out from. This is brilliant. You saved me time and you saved me money. And that the degree to which that does not happen, to which it is not merely absent of thanks, but that critical feedback is actively resented, is really surprising, really discouraging, and definitely for me, a reason that pushes me away from, from staying in academia. Yeah, um, it's interesting because I don't think that the kind of the conversations around the quality of research or the pressures on the quality of research in academia where my reasons for leaving per se. Um, but at the same time, while I was in my postdoc, I did get quite frustrated with the amount of resources as a field we're putting into running these studies, study after study, in order to show something that will make um, a very good impact paper. Um, and at the same time, any studies that kind of don't make a great paper have been kind of ignored or they're not really, this, we still put a lot of resources into, into these studies, but it's almost as if there is that preference for what will make a good paper and what will get accepted into external as opposed to the pursuit of the truth. And I think it's been quite a contrast for me ever since I've left because the way I see research now is research is as our way of finding out the truth and not a sexy result that will be publishable and will get people talking. Because at the end of the day, we want to be able to estimate, for example, what is the cause of something because we actually want to change it and implement it. And if we're wrong about that, we will actually have negative consequences for whoever the people on the other side of a product or a program are, right? So if we are doing sloppy science and we are not really paying attention to how we're designing the study and we're making conclusions um, that are too strong the way often journals, we, we tend to, when we write in journals, we tend to go push quite strong and brave results because we want people to talk about them and we want them to feel like they have a real impact. But if you do that in industry and if you have a result that's actually quite weak, but you push for a change that might actually backfire at you and have negative consequences because there is that kind of real tangible effect of getting things wrong in industry. Whereas I think in academia, people have got things wrong in the past, um, but once they've been published in kind of 
um, journals um, of a certain impact factor or certain recognition in the field. That's the way, that's where consequences end because that's the end of the journey for that paper. So I do think that incentives are very different um, from within academia and outside. Um, but as I said, I don't think it's been sort of a driving factor for me in terms of leaving, but it has been kind of something that I've been thinking about a lot more since I've left. Yeah, so in academia, I think I was in a bit of a weird position in the sense that my academic career was more based around open research and less about the specific research that I did. That was like, I don't think many people particularly have even read my papers at this point. Um, but people kind of know me for the open research stuff. And I knew that that is something that I was particularly interested in. Um, and even though I think the research culture is changing and doing good open research is becoming more valuable, more valued than it used to be, I think it's still changing quite slowly, quite frustratingly slowly. Um, and that that also made me feel disillusioned as well. Like, think things were changing, but I, I could just see that decades were going to stretch out ahead of me and things would still change very, very slowly. I do really think that the pandemic has opened a lot of doors for organisations to realise how they can be just as, as efficient working remotely. And I think that flexibility is something that a lot of people who are currently in academia value a lot. Um, and having seen that actually there are other organisations that you can work remotely, I think that's given people a real sense of um, as a real sense of vision that you can actually have a work, a job where it's not just a nine to five where you do go, do go into the office. And I think that's been common misconception of industry jobs prior to the pandemic because it was seen as an office job where you have to go in nine to five. It was seen as very rigid and strict, um, whereas organizations have used that um, time during the pandemic to really transform the way they're working online and collaborating. So that allowed a lot of employees in those organizations to also have that flexible lifestyle. So today I didn't really have to take half an afternoon off from my work because I can just work that hours later on or I've already worked additional hours. So it's something that academics do tend to value quite a lot in the academic job, but it's now something organizations can offer as well. And I do think that's one big reason. The second big reason, um, Twitter has allowed people who are leaving to have a lot more empowering um, story about what they've left, because I do think that maybe five, 10 years ago, people were still leaving, but they were perhaps seen as people who didn't make it to the next stage, right? They were seen as they didn't necessarily succeed in getting that uh, permanent position, and therefore that's why they left. So people were always leaving, but I do think that Twitter has given people who leave a voice of this is not just because I didn't make it to the next stage. It's it's actually because I've made uh, I found something that's actually in line with my interest, and I think that's really changing how we're talking about um, non-academic jobs. It's not just that we didn't make it, but actually sometimes people keep weighing these positives and negatives, and once they balance it one way, people do tend to start exploring those other alternatives. And I do think the way Twitter has. The way there's been Twitter threads have ex explored kind of how white people leave, it's actually gave that kind of empowering voice to people and it's changed how leaving academia is seen, um, which I think encourages more people to take that kind of things into their hands and make a decision from themselves 
without being afraid that they're going to be branded as a failure and as someone who didn't really make it into academia. Yeah, I think Twitter's been great for visibility. Um, I think it's a very shallow debate to talk about the rates instead of the, the visibility, the who is leaving, the why is they're leaving. Uh, the idea that anybody could say that a, a full professor who leaves their job to work for, you know, Meta or the likes and is now earning a quarter of a million dollars a year in a fully remote position that they have failed is laughable. Like they have achieved everything they could want in academia and now they are getting to do something else cool and very well remunerated and way more flexible. And I think that visibility is cool. Unfortunately, that's not like everyone leaving. Um, but um, these are like important examples and exemplars for us all to get. Um, I think it's at the same time, it's important to not talk about academia as being monolithic because uh, let's face it, as far as I, I know, the four of us are psychologists in a broader sense. Um, I have colleagues who uh, went to grad school uh, as pharmacists, biologists, geneticists, and outside of psychology, like I know we have clinical psychology and IO and, and, and some subfields like this, but all of them tend to be you go to school for that and then you go into that industry. Whereas in so many other fields, there is an applied industry branch where you are funneled directly towards to do medical research or work with and gene sequencing companies doing cool things or the life sciences generally, right? And in those cases, when you ask in a seminar, uh, even early in grad school, like who's thinking of staying in academia? When I talk to my colleagues, what they say is like one or two hands out of 20 would go up. Everybody else is saying, I am going to industry at the first chance. I'm going to work for a big pharma company. I'm going to work something else or at a startup doing something cool, but nobody's thinking of staying. So I think some of the discourse at the moment is quite psychology specific. And I think our unique thing is that because we aren't, in my opinion, massively successful as a science, and the reason or the, the evidence I would point to for that is that we don't have a really closely aligned applied wing, right? Academic psychology is so divorced from an industry in which it's directly used. Um, unfortunately, you know, you, if you train in social psychology, yeah, there, I'm not saying there aren't people who don't want that in their company and hire it or whatever, but it's not the same as the link between uh, physics and engineering or the like, right? Um, so unfortunately, to some degree, I think academia likes uh, yeah, reinventing the wheel and saying, oh, but, you know, what if people leave and, and is this even a new phenomenon? I don't think it is. I think as the others have said, it's a matter of increased visibility. I think that's a good thing. And we get to see who's leaving and why. Um, and some of them are really nice and inspiring stories. And, and yeah, and, and, and other people should pursue it too. Um, some of it is also maybe survivorship bias because the people who are left get to define the narrative on why. I mean, leave lit is a thing and leave lit is a very nice discovery for a lot of people um, because it gives you, uh, it, in case any listener isn't aware, leave lit is basically people writing articles or blogs about why they're leaving. Um, um, and often they're quite juicy uh, and certainly they're, 
very real and it gives it until now i think for a long time leave lit was all you had to go on leave lit and your professional network um and now we have a much wider community of people on twitter being like i've achieved everything i wanted and i'm still going to leave because working on a beach and earning a load of money sounds good to me the question of who is leaving is not just a matter of uh more senior people leaving but that is definitely a thing or it's more visible to me at least but I also think even in the junior people, it's the most methodologically interested people. The more methodological people are, unfortunately, the, I think the better scientists they would have made, and yet they're the first ones to leave because they are close to an aligned industry. There are, they are doing kind of data and coding-based jobs, and they get snapped up really quick. And I think this is great for them and it's great for in one sense it's it's cool because it is giving psychologists this aligned industry to say well you could go to grad school and learn how to run experiments and write code and work with data and that makes you a kind of behavioral scientist in the broad sense and companies might want that but that itself i think is a, a really big brain drain on academia because we all know we have a credibility problem uh, in our science and the people most likely to be able to help fix it directly, train others to fix it, are also the ones who are the most likely to get offered nice jobs outside. And, and that's really something for academia to reckon with, or um, I hope maintain some level of awareness of and not just be the it's all fine meme while they're on fire. So are you saying that everyone in academia that hasn't left is methodologically inept, Ian? Is that... Uh... Is that something I can put on Twitter and tweet out? <laughs> um, definitely not. This is a broad trend thing. I think it's just a, a probabilities thing. The, the, some of the, the people who write, uh, for example, maintaining our libraries is just not particularly valued. I don't, in any of the nations of people that I talk to, it's pretty hard to get promotion and tenure by saying, I wrote an R package that millions of people use and find valuable. Um, I make tools that accelerate other people's research, but that's exactly the sort of skill set that um, could get you hired in the industry, in, in like a data and code based industry. Um, so yeah, there are there are specific types of skills that we need that we are losing uh, left, right, and center. Mm -hmm. um, well, this has been a an, a fascinating talk. I wish I could go further, but I know that everybody has um, things to do, and I only asked for an hour of your time. You've said a lot, but I wondered whether you could offer advice to people who are contemplating leaving academia and maybe have anxieties to make that that leap. Yeah, so an interesting part about applying for jobs outside of academia is that it's really hard to get a sense of what the job actually is like just from a job description. I remember going through so many job descriptions and not really being able to know what does it what will it look like day to day, who am I going to be working with, what sort of skills are already in the team. Um, and unfortunately, the only thing you can do to get that information a lot of time is to apply because application is like your expression of interest that you are interested in that position. And it's not only until you get through the interview stage, obviously, that you're giving that opportunity to ask those questions. And I found that part the most valuable um, uh, uh, from the whole of the process, because I think 
um, being able to ask questions and ask specific questions around the projects they're doing, um, who I'll be working with, what sort of budgets they have, have allowed me to build a picture of what my life might look like outside academia, which I didn't have by just reading the job description. Um, so my advice, number one, is that if you are considering, just start applying and start having those conversations with people where you might see yourself in the future. And that would give you a lot of information in terms of where you think you will fit in versus where what sort of positions are perhaps not something that you're looking for. Um, and along the ways, I was also chatting to a lot of people around that process um, and made sure that I made kind of connections with people who have already made that transition. So, for example, my PI one day just told me that actually her cousin has made a similar move um, and she worked in one of the organizations that actually I was looking at when I was applying. Um, and so she connected me and I was able to ask her some questions regarding that specific transition as well. And I think that was even more useful in terms of being able to see that there were people who were in my position who actually ended up in quite a happy place, who were found a job that aligned their interests and aligned their values um, and they were also valued by the company because they were promoted within a specific amount of time as well which I think when I'm looking at academics and academic profiles sometimes it takes even up to five years sometimes to get a promotion because you have to hit a specific type of um, impact papers or you know you have to kind of bring in something that in terms of money and grants there's a lot of pressure whereas I do see that outside people get progressed a lot quicker because people appreciate once you come into the organization and you bring valuable skills that's often being recognized because you do need people who are aware of what the organization has and has the relevant skills and that's kind of recognized a lot more I think on the outside through promotions and being able to kind of build your career in that way so I definitely do think that chatting to people who have made a step outside and have made that success in their own right was something that has really made me a lot sure that this is something I want to explore for myself. Yeah, I think um, if someone is thinking that they might want to explore options outside of academia but aren't really sure um, or are a bit scared about taking the leap, I think it's important to remember that this isn't Brexit. It's not an all or nothing, leave or remain decision that influences things for years to come. Like if you're curious about your career options, you should just go and apply for something that interests you. So the way I like to think about it is think about the skills that you enjoy the most. So for me, that was running experiments, basically, and looking at data. Um, and then think about something you're passionate about. So for example, um, if you enjoy data analysis and you love dogs, then you see if there's a dog or an animal charity that needs a data analyst. That's how you can narrow down the options. So I think it's quite overwhelming to just think of academia versus not academia, which is a lot of things. Um, and companies love people with PhDs. Like We don't realise how skilled we are when we're in academia because everyone around us is just as skilled as we are. And I think that's why, you know, Part of the reason behind imposter syndrome, everybody around you has very similar skill set. But when you get to a company, it's not the case anymore. You are quite exceptional when you go to a company. Um, unlike Caroline was saying, progression is really quick in industry. Um, you can wait years for a promotion in academia. It's months in industry. 
Um, it doesn't take long to launch a bear. You can go sideways, upwards, sideways and upwards, all sorts of directions um, really, really quickly because of how good our skills are. And I think it's important also that once, you, once you're in, a, um, in an industry job, if you don't love it, that's fine. If you miss academia, you can go back. I think people kind of think that you leave and then you can never return, but that's not true. You absolutely can. Um, I have a very good friend, um, Ashley Johnston. She used to work with me at Gorilla. She was doing great work with us, but she realised that she was a lecturer at heart. She missed teaching, and now that's, that's what she's doing. Uh, first-hand experience of industry is an asset, not you know a disadvantage. Yeah, I like Jade's point about uh, you don't need to make a single decision to leave. I think it returns to the opening question on how did you decide to leave? And I think the answer for a lot of people is they didn't make a single decision to, and they didn't start looking after they had decided to leave. I have multiple colleagues now and my partner who, who did it already, who started taking interviews with companies long before they decided to, uh, to leave. Because you know you can only get so far networking and talking to people informally, and you should do all of those things. You can cold call people on LinkedIn. And, uh, yeah, people are surprisingly generous with their time. But um, that was one of the things that surprised me that, that my uh, close friends and partner taught me, which is, well, why not start applying way before you've made that decision and talk to companies and see what they're offering? Um, and if you like what they're offering, you can give it some thought or who knows, maybe you can negotiate something with your current employer to take time off work. Um, or certainly you can return to your academic job feeling um, like you have options. And that nothing makes you less fearful and on the back foot than feeling like, I don't need this. Like, this is fun. And if it's not, I'll do something else. And I think too many academics that I know are in that like, if I don't, if I'm not an academic, I don't know what I would be, or you know, I have no idea what the other side looks like. Hey, go and ask, even if you're planning on staying. I mean, if you're if you're that confident that you definitely don't want industry, check your beliefs. You know, contact some some actual contingencies. Uh, go and talk to an interview uh, to to a company, get an interview somewhere that and see what their 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 offering is and their pay packages and what you would be doing and, and think, yeah, that's definitely not for me. Um, Hey, yeah, I know way down the line when somebody is starting to talk about offers and contracts, then you can decide, do I actually want to leave? Um, it does not have to be one big monolithic decision. Okay, let's just finish off now just talking about imposter syndrome. What do you think of it? Do you have it? What are your triggers? How do you deal with it? Any advice? Things like that. I'm ambivalent about the concept of imposter syndrome, but I think it's still fair and accurate to say there was a time yeah um i think it's a fairly classically anxious thought to wonder if you're not in the right place um or if something is beyond you and i think what i have done over time is try to answer that question instead of leaving it like just hanging in the air like do i not belong in this room um as in am i incompetent and as you know colleagues of ours have talked about julie Rohrer, Danny Lockins, um, just because you have uh, the fear doesn't mean that you're not incompetent. It could well be that you have both. And that's that's really important. Not to undermine you know, the importance of mental health and stuff, but it can also be the case that we have no idea what we're doing. And, and if so, 
that's an answer you want to have if you want to do it better in the future. So I think, yeah, a little bit of um, answering that question. Um, and it's okay. And there's definitely times when I realized I have no idea what I'm doing here or I have no interest in, in this part of this. So I'm just going to do this less or I'm going to educate myself and get better at this. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I definitely have experienced a lot of imposter syndrome, particularly in academia. I think it relates in part to what I touched on before, where everybody around you has a very similar skill set to you. Everyone is very smart and very intelligent. And you kind of feel like everybody is just a little bit better than you. Um, and it's really easy to feel like, oh, maybe, like, I think a lot of us were probably high achievers in school as well, where we were the smartest kids, um, and now we're not. And it's easy to think, oh, maybe, maybe I never was one of the smart ones. Maybe it was all a fluke. Everyone's starting to notice that I don't belong here, that everyone else is on a much higher level to me. Um, and I think like, I have had a couple of harsh negative comments from academics before about my ability to be here but I think like the best way to combat it is just to surround yourself with people that are going to be nice to you and um, like surround yourself with the friends and the colleagues that lift you up and that you can lift up in return is the best way I've found of combating imposter syndrome in academia I think I experience it a lot less now um because I'm in, I'm in a team where there are so many varied skills. Everybody brings something completely unique. Um, that, and because we're all working together and there's no sort of competitive culture, like in academia, you, you, you're constantly ranked and rated on all sorts of different things, and it's very easy to feel like you're not doing well enough. But where I am now... We work together. We all have different skills, um, and everybody everybody is amazing. But and but it doesn't make me feel useless. It it's such a positive environment. Um, it's kind of hard to explain exactly what it is. Cause I'm not really sure. Um, but I definitely experience it less because I'm in such a positive environment now. Yeah, just like Ian, I think I have a bit of an issue with the term imposter syndrome. And I do think that when I first came into the academia world, when I was in my first year PhD student, that's probably what I would call the imposter syndrome, because you're coming into a space that you don't know very much about. And you realize that actually the other PhD students are already running experiments, are already publishing, are already thinking about all these things. And you're just at the very start and you just feel so overwhelmed in terms of kind of is that what I'm supposed to do um and I think for me during that first year of PhD that kind of was associated more with terms of like withdrawing myself from that so I did consider should I quit because I'm never going to develop those skills and kind of arrive I kind of had the anxiety around kind of if, if, I, if I'm ever going to make it but I think since then I have learned a lot about how to deal with these feelings and I do know that a lot of this is tied to what happens during your job, right? So you get a rejection and then you question absolutely everything, what you've done in that world, because you think that's absolutely worthless. And then the next day you might have an acceptance of a paper. You have might have really good news. And then all of a sudden that changes how you feel about yourself as well. So I realized that for me, it's more about kind of the tasks you're doing, that these are just emotions that you feel in the moments. And I 
do allow myself to, if I want to have a negative evaluation about myself that day, I let myself have it, but I know it's not going to last for longer because I know that this is just a normal part of being up and down. Um, and I think transitioning outside of academia, um, I definitely feel that that kind of conversations around imposter syndrome aren't really there because a lot of times you are just expected to, you know, pick up a task. And sometimes it might be a task you've never done before, you know, that it might be a task that we are, as academics aren't as familiar. Um, but you get a lot of support in terms of if you haven't done this task before, um, you might be mentored by someone in your team to show you how to do it exactly. You have someone to ask questions, to know how to accomplish that task successfully. So I do think there's a lot more support in terms of making sure that if it's something that feels a little bit out of your control and feels that it's completely out of your depth, but you might, for example, be asked to do it, that there is support. Uh, for you to accomplish these tasks and at the same time there's a lot more conversations as well with like your line manager around kind of what is the sort of things you want to develop versus what are the sort of tasks that you feel aren't really contributing to your career development so for example if you're in academia and for example writing is something that you absolutely despise and you don't have any skill in Outside of academia, you will have someone who, for example, really enjoys that task. And so you share that task and you utilize people's talents in a way that is the most optimal, as opposed to having one person who's the first author of a paper, having to do all of these tasks across all of the paper from data analysis to writing to, you know, literature review. I think, I think we need to start recognizing that not everyone is, you know, the best in every single part of the process. And I think this is where um, I do see hope with um, kind of where science is moving towards team sciences and recognizing that we do need to work as a team and we do need to bring expertise into into our projects to make sure that you know like people are who have these skills and people who um, feel confident in those skills are taking on these tasks to, and making sure that this kind of part of the process is as of high highest quality as possible as opposed to kind of assuming that um, an academic should be just skillful in 1,000 different kind of domains of a job. And it is quite wide job description when we're looking at what um, especially permanent staff members, faculty members are expected to take on and excel in as well. Um, so I do think that the way kind of the industry pathway or outside academia, whatever way you want to call it, there's a lot more recognition of we do have specific skills and we should be making sure that everyone's using the kind of the top skills and not everyone has to be perfect and everything. So I think that's been very helpful, I think, in kind of my thinking about where do my skills and what I want to develop more versus what I think it won't be useful for me in the future at all. And it doesn't bring me joy. And therefore, I don't think I should be spending a lot of my time of my job doing that tasks. I, those tasks I don't enjoy. Mm -hmm.